Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is a replay of our October 3rd Market Matters event, which looked at the future of the industrial sector and the impact that emerging technologies and new consumer demands will have on industrial developments and investments here in DFW. This was a super informative, sold-out event for us. We're super grateful to everyone who came out. We hope you learned a lot. I know I certainly did. And in just a moment, you'll hear CBRE's Jack Fraker outline his research into the industrial sector, and then he'll join our panel in talking about what it all means for Dallas. Our panel consisted of Nuveen Real Estate's Gray Bouchelon, Hillwood's Tom Fishman, Collier's International's Alan Gump, the Duke Realty Corporation's Jeff Thornton, and Michelle. Michelle Wheeler with Jackson Shaw. They're coming up in just a bit. We've also provided the slide deck that Jack used in his presentation, which can be found in the blog post that accompanies this podcast on our website. To check that out, go to recouncil.com backslash trek wire. I'd like to take a moment to recognize today's sponsor, Grant Thornton. Founded in 1924, Grant Thornton is one of the world's leading organizations of independent audit, tax, and advisory firms. With dedicated real estate professionals across 59 offices, Grant Thornton's real estate team works with REITs, office, retail, and industrial owners and developers, and property management firms to help mitigate risk and strategically drive growth. Whether you're addressing new government regulations or seeking alternative financing sources, investigating new technologies, or considering strategies for performance improvements, Grant Thornton is here to help you build a strong foundation for the road ahead. Before we get to today's replay, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to TrekCast if you like what you hear. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. You can also follow the Real Estate Council on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And stay up to date with everything we're doing in DFW and beyond. And now, a replay of our October 3rd Market Matters event, Industrial Evolution, right here on TrekCast. Good morning and welcome to this morning's event. I'm Jim Knight. I am the chairman of the Real Estate Council and the founding principal for KFM Engineering and Design. Before we get started, I would like to first thank our sponsors, Grant Thornton for being our series sponsor and DCEO Magazine for being our media sponsor. Thank you very much. Without your support, we could not hold these events and the Real Estate Council would not be nearly as successful as we are. Market Matters brings together leading firms and decision makers in the multifamily, office, retail, industrial, and commercial subsectors of the real estate industry, as well as capital markets for unparalleled access to expert insights, networking, and high-quality educational content. To serve our organization's over 2,100 members and 650 member companies, Trek offers continuous educational opportunities annually from tours to panels to podcasts. When you have time, please go to our website at recouncil.com and you will look at many of the robust activities that this organization has to offer to allow you and your companies to spread your wings and be more successful. Please do that. This year is a special one for the Real Estate Council. 2019 marks 25th year of the Trek Foundation. 
To date, the Trek Foundation has contributed over $12.5 million in grant funds and thousands of pro bono service hours to our community on over 150 community organization projects throughout North Texas. This kind of community investment would not be possible without the partnership of our members and community partners, which brings us to the topic of the Giving Gala, which will be held this October 24th at the Hilton Anatole. For those of you who have been to the Giving Gala, it is our time each year to recognize the great things that we do in the community, to recognize the partners who perform that work and to help us create the city that we've all imagined. This year will be slightly different. While we celebrate the incredible work of our members and community partners, instead of our standard buffet-style buffet, we're going to do something a little unique, so everybody pay attention to this, especially all you guys who want to sit down and have this big buffet dinner. We're not going to do a buffet dinner this year. We're going to have a strolling dinner, and there's a theme that goes with it. We are going to have food trucks throughout the event that offer finger food entrees like tostados, grilled cheese sandwiches, and tater tot nachos, as well as a variety of desserts. There's a reason why we're doing this. So please make sure you eat prior to the program and concert, but visit as many of the food trucks as you can. And there's a reason because each of these food trucks represents a different Dallas Catalyst project partner or project site that will offer activities, information, and ways that you can get involved in their individual projects or in their organizations. We can't wait for you to join us at this unique event and hope you will really have a good time. Now it is my great pleasure to introduce our moderator, Jack Fraker. Many of you know Jack, or at least know his reputation. He is Vice Chairman and Managing Director at CBRE Capital Markets. He has over 30 years of commercial real estate experience. I think he's shooting low. I think it's got a four in front of it, but um, I'll go with the 30. Specialized in the sale of investment properties for institutional clients as well as tenant representation for corporate clients. He recently assumed additional responsibilities as the global head of CBRE's industrial and logistics sector. He is consistently ranked in the top, as a top producer in investment sales, representing some of the country's largest corporations, global investors, pension funds, and REITs. He has leased or sold over 815 million square feet and approximately 6,600 acres of development sites in more than 60 United States cities, Mexico, Europe, and South America. He is truly a legend in the real estate market in Texas. Please welcome Jack. Thanks. No. Actually, if you, if you add it up, it's more like 37, so it's not, there's not a four in, in front of it. I just, I just did the quick math. And I can say that uh, finally in my 37-year uh, career, uh, our asset class is now the most popular asset class in the world. And it's great. For, uh, for years and years and years, you know, the, it was a small deal uh, asset class. You know, the deals were $20 million deals, $15 million deals. And now there's giant uh, multi-city portfolios. There's portfolios that are uh, U.S. and European combined portfolios. And as I do travel around the world, the, uh, the, the asset class is popular everywhere. I mean, I just got back last night uh, from uh, Montreal, 
and uh, the Canadian investors have been the leading uh, uh, country investing in our asset class. And we had meeting after meeting after meeting yesterday, and the temperature was 50 degrees, and it was rainy outside and cold and cool, completely different than Dallas. But all those meetings, the investors wanted to talk about the U.S. industrial class and especially the fundamentals that are driving uh, rent interest, uh, rental rate growth and more absorption than uh, new supply. And so I, I, we have a great panel today, and I'm going to try to have most of the activity focused on the panel. We've been rehearsing for hours and hours for our panel session um, and wrapped up this morning with a two-minute preparation. But, uh, and then I'm going to use, I'm making a little bit of a risky situ situation here. I'm using somebody else's deck. Uh, we have a guy at our company that's our global economist for our asset class. And he put together this pretty good deck that talks primarily about the fundamentals and what's happening. And so I'm going to use this deck. So it's going to, we're going to be doing a little bit some of this together as we go along here. So the starting out, you know, this, this is a pretty good slide that says, you know, it's, is it too good to be true? Should we be worried? Or, you know, there's always a little sense of uh, are we too late in the cycle? And that's a legitimate uh, concern. And things like the uh, stock market dropping 500 uh, points yesterday, that, you know, that shakes your uh, confidence. I mean, I'm worried about my 401k plan and how I'm going to be able to retire uh, here in a, in a few years. So th that worry is always in the back of the back of our minds. Stock market, and then things like uh, you know uh, daily tweets about tr uh, tariffs and trade and uh, U.S. recession, manufacturing job growth. All of these things are a backdrop to, to what we have to be aware of every single day and how that might impact our day-to-day -day, uh, jobs. But we really, we shouldn't be all that worried because uh, I think for, for the first time ever, there's a tremendous amount of governance, financial uh, governance, banking regulations that came as a result of the great financial crisis in 2008 and 9. And I've seen enough uh, crises over the years that every time we have a crisis, uh, it's, it's, we suffer during that period of time, but some good things come about. And this time, the banks put more regulations in place that more or less created a governor on new supply. There was this word now that uh, developers had to look up in the dictionary, it's called recourse. So they were having to get uh, you know, recourse on their financing and be, put their own equity in these uh, deals and not just have 100% financing like it was back in the, uh, the good old days. So that governor has kept a control on new supply. And then at the same time, we've had this tremendous uh, creation of a brand new driver for our sector, which is e-commerce. And so you can just see some of these statistics that are up here in front of you. And that's just you know, unprecedented uh, statistics. And uh, our, our company, like other companies that are, uh, have a leasing practice, our, our leasing brokers are telling us that the, um, the rental rates are increasing and rising right before their eyes. And for years and years and years, we would put together financial models when we sell an income property, and we would have very aggressive, uh, but still credible, underwriting assumptions in our financial models. And now our industrial leasing professional, professionals in the field are telling us that our underwriting is too conservative, which is the first time that's ever happened. So that's so we really shouldn't worry too much if we keep track of the fundamentals. And, and I think the statistic is something like nine years in a row, 36 quarters is another way to say it, we've had uh, a positive absorption. 
So that, that's, you know, you basic uh, economics 101, you have more demand than, than supply. And what changes are the rents that I just talked about? And just really in general, it's always difficult to forecast what's gonna happen going forward. Even our uh, president has had some uh, difficulties making accurate uh, forecasts. And you, know, you have to do some forecasting by looking back in, in the past, but uh, going forward, nobody can really predict the tremendous impact that e-commerce is going to have on our sector. And the next few slides in this deck, I think, are primarily oriented towards the, uh, the, the fundamentals and how uh, e-commerce in particular is changing everything for us. I mean, I, you know, even uh, there's all, it's obvious that millennials and younger people buy things online, but even older people uh, buy things online. I mean, I asked my assistant to help me do it, but, but, but uh, I, even, even I'm, I'm contributing to online shopping, and if I'm doing it, it's just it's pervasive in the United States. And there's uh, 10,000 people a day that turn 65. They're going to have some more time on their hands now, and they're going to be like their grandkids or their kids and buy some things online. So this is just really taking off now. And our country, I think the statistic is that 9% of all of our retail sales in the United States are uh, online shopping. And other countries around the world, the UK, for example, is 22% of all retail sales are online. And less developed countries, such as India and China, are, are more like 40% of all sales are online. So we're not gonna probably get to 40%. There's still a healthy uh, retail sector in the United States. But if we grow from 9% to 15%, it's, it's dramatic. And for, and for years, we were able to look at the uh, growth. We could forecast potential absorption, forecast the fundamentals, looking at the GDP of the United States, looking at employment and uh, population growth. And that, you know, that does create some certain demand that's very tangible and you can predict. But, but actually what's happening now with e-commerce, we're taking down an additional 90 million square feet of absorption every year directly attributable to uh, e-commerce. And this goes back to, uh, I don't know if you can see it in the whole audience back there, and I can certainly circulate this deck later on, but this, you know, this is the change in the evolution of Amazon's strategy. And since I have been in the business 37 years, I remember back in the beginning of Amazon, they, uh, they built a distribution center in Coffeyville, Kansas, which is the exact geographic center of the continental United States. And Jeff Bezos thought, well, from Coffeyville, Kansas, I can serve Seattle, San Diego, Boston, and uh, Miami. And he had that, uh, that one building, was a million square foot building was supposed to serve the whole country. Well, you can see from this graph that they've changed their model. And now Amazon is trying to serve the whole country and serve every single one of us, uh, if not the same day, uh, within the, uh, one or two days. And, and that's created a tremendous amount of demand. I don't know if this slide shows the square footage up there, but I, I think Amazon has uh, 235 million, 240 million square feet in the United States. And as we're sitting here today, they, they have an RFP out for another 20 or 30 million square feet of distribution space. And they're changing the way uh, they, they operate their facilities. And they could, that could have a pervasive uh, impact on the entire industry. They're doing more and more uh, multi-level distribution centers. There's a building that they have in Los Angeles that's a 70-foot clear distribution center. 
and the, they had to go and find that there was only two cranes in the United States that would be big enough and tall enough and strong enough to lift these tilt wall panels. At the bottom of those panels that are probably three or four feet wide and then tapering off at the top. So that's, and, and the, the developer of that particular project called us and said, said, Jack, would you give us all the sale comps in the US for 70 foot clear buildings? And I said, well, there are not any sale comps for 70 foot clear buildings. So that developer kept that building on their own balance sheet. But I can tell you that in Europe, uh, Amazon is building those types of buildings and probably has developed 10, 10 or 12 buildings like that. And they've been able to sell those buildings to uh, institutional investors. So Amazon's change and its uh, plans are gonna affect all of us. And then let's see, this, is our, this came from our uh, economist and he's talking about, um, well he's actually using that same stat that I said. So the growth in e-commerce sales, he's predicting up to 18%, which is dramatic. And for each uh, $1 billion of uh, increased uh, e-commerce sales, that equals uh, 1.25 million square feet of warehouse space. So you take the normal GDP growth statistic that we have for absorption, and you add on this growth in e-commerce, and that growth in e-commerce is another, I don't know if this is gonna show this stat, but it's another 80 or 90 million square feet of absorption every year. So now we've got a couple of slides here about where we should invest. And then this is a looking back slide a little bit about uh, you know the advent of e-commerce. You know, in the old days, it was Amazon was trying to sell books, and we thought it was a miracle that you could order a book on your computer and then it would show up at your house in two weeks. That was that was amazing. And but that's but we did that because it was so cheap. It was a lot less expensive than going down to. Uh, Barnes and Noble or Borders books at the corner and buying it, buying it right there. You could get it for 25% less. So early in the early days of e-commerce, it was all about cost savings, but now as, as we are seeing, it's all about service, which is why they have these uh, warehouses all over the uh, country in very close proximity to the population. And I keep saying uh, Amazon, I could easily be saying other company names too. All the major uh, brick and mortar retailers have e-commerce uh, uh, delivery plans. You know, obviously Walmart, Target, and companies like that, but even smaller retailers. Best Buy is another example. The typical Best Buy of footprint in a retail shopping center for years and years was 40,000 square feet. And, they, and then they, they would do all of their sales from retail uh, platform. But now the typical Best Buy uh, store is 20,000 square feet, and the dramatic amount of their uh, sales are being done online. So there's more on Amazon's strategy that we just talked about too. I'm trying to stay with this deck. I mean, I think in Dallas, and some of the developers in the audience know the statistic better than I do, but Dallas probably has uh, eight or nine uh, million square foot distribution centers for, for Amazon, just in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And you can extrapolate that across the country, and it's, it's really, really uh, dramatic. There's a couple of slides here about you know, what's important to the, depending on what your perspective is, investor or an occupier. And um, the uh, occupiers are more focused about uh, location. There's, uh, I mean, they, they do sophisticated algorithms to find the best location for proximity to their customer. And the, the rent is an important component of that, but it's not as important as the location is. According to many uh, observers, the, the rent is really only about 5% 
of the overall cost uh, decision the occupier has to make. And then actually when it gets down to it, if it's a small building, if it's a so-called last mile building, the physical fundamentals and specifications of the building are less important as well. Using Amazon again as an example, they leased a building over in the Brook Hollow Park here in Dallas. And that building is almost as, as old as I am. I mean, it's a really old building. It's obsolete in every single physical feature you can think of. But yet it was a immediate proximity to Mockingbird. And Mockingbird, if you go uh, east, it gets you into Highland Park, which is the highest uh, per capita income uh, zip code and the best customer base for that particular Amazon customer. So it's all locations important to the occupier. And now more and more investors are understanding that uh, they don't have to be totally in the primary markets of Los Angeles, Dallas, uh, New Jersey, Atlanta. They could be in some uh, so-called secondary markets that offer some supply chain efficiencies. More on the evolution of uh, Amazon. And then, I'm sure you can't, you can't see this from back there, which is why I will circulate this uh, later. Uh, there's, there's markets in the United States that are really, that you know, they may have a million people uh, MSA, but from an institutional investor perspective, they could be considered uh, secondary. Uh, an example of that would be Louisville, Kentucky. Another example would be uh, Memphis, Tennessee. But those two markets have uh, tremendous uh, infrastructure in place. Uh, Louisville has the uh, UPS Global Hub, which has 27,000 employees for UPS delivering you know, boxes to our front doors every single day. Memphis has uh, FedEx. Uh, you know, I think really Memphis invented uh, e-commerce. I remember using the word e-commerce back in, back in the uh, 80s. That was invented probably by the Chamber of Commerce guy at, uh, at Memphis. And so I just think these, some of these slides are going to be too hard to read from back there, but they're basically uh, talking about controlled supply and, and, and uh, demand, uh, occupier demand. And some of these uh, so-called secondary markets, they don't have as much uh, speculative new construction. You know, Dallas's stats, I think, are 20 million square feet of new construction. Uh, other major primary markets around the country had those same sort of stats. But you take a market like, uh, like uh, Cincinnati, which has also got a FedEx hub there, they, they don't have as much speculative construction. So you, you combine tremendous uh, tenant demand through e-commerce and no new construction. Those are great markets for investors. It's, I mean, you have a very high tenant retention ratio in those types of markets. There's not a vacant speculative building down the street for the uh, tenant to go down and try to get a better deal. They usually have to renew just and stay in place. In fact, I'm not gonna try to go through all these slides if it's okay with the audience. I, I, can, uh, I, I can send this out later on, but there's a, there's a map of the United States that mentions some of these same markets and shows some of the, uh, the unbelievably low vacancy rates. Uh, I don't know if it shows it on another map, but Los Angeles, for example, is, is one and a half percent vacant. So they've got about a billion square feet in Los Angeles and it's one and a half percent vacant. And it takes a long time in California to get a site uh, entitled, permitted, ready to, uh, to go. But once that permitting process is complete, the uh, developer and the institutional uh, equity behind the developer can virtually count on that building being leased uh, right away. And there's a statistic in, the, uh, in northern New Jersey, which I think is pretty interesting. 
which is the average lease-up time to, for a speculative building. And the average lease-up time in speculative buildings in northern New Jersey is minus one month. So that, that means as soon as the uh, permits are in place, the, uh, there's so much tenant, pent-up tenant demand that those buildings are getting leased a month before the shovel ever hits, hits the ground. And I think there's a lot of Dallas developers here in the uh, audience that could say the same thing. A typical uh, loan pro forma would require nine months or 12 months pro forma to lease it up after completion. But the statistic uh, nationally is something like 60% of these buildings are leased bef before compl completion of construction. So that's very, that's very healthy, and as we all know, our asset class, it only takes six to nine months to build an industrial building. So if we do ever get to a situation where we have a recession or slowing uh, tenant demand, it's an asset class that you can stop construction pretty quickly or, or at least not start the next one. Uh, in New York City and Park Avenue, uh, J.P. Morgan is, is redeveloping its new headquarters there. They're literally tearing down of 60, 60 uh, floor, 60 story building on Park Avenue, they're gonna build a 85 story building. It's gonna take about six years for that project. So if we go into a recession, and they've already started the process, so that's something you just can't stop. They're gonna have to keep going on with that project. Whereas in our asset class, you know, you can pull the trigger and, and, and stop pretty quickly if you have to. Here's some more circles and dots that are uh, not too hard, not too easy to re read. But, but and, you know, really email me if you want this deck. But I think the darker dots are saying where there's more uh, liquidity. And so when you have, you know, more liquidity, uh, it gives the investor comfort that they have an exit strategy they can count on. And that, that dot, those dots probably already also correlate to uh, returns. This is, uh, well, the only thing that's really, what's interesting about the top of this page is uh, NACREF, which is the pension fund metric, pension fund uh, report that measures all the asset classes, retail, self-storage, office, apartments, industrial. And our asset class uh, provides the most re reliable and predictable returns. It's also very good from a cash-on-cash -cash perspective. So, you know, we, we use in our financial modeling that the, uh, it takes, uh, you know, 50 cents to a dollar to renew a tenant in a, in a building, a warehouse building. And to renew an office tenant in Manhattan, that's 75 to 275 dollars a square foot. So the cash on cash yields are really, really low for other, not to, not to knock the office asset class, but, but uh, from the, a CIO at a pension plan, would prefer to have an asset class and an investment where they, where they know they can get certain level of predictable returns that match up from an actuarial perspective to their retiring uh, pensioners. So the, our asset class provides that, which is why it's so popular. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a little bit about some of these markets. That, and so this is a slide that says it's all good. So that was a, that's that part. And I, I think now we're gonna get going with our panel, which this is, the, this is the best part because these guys are real experts and they're gonna come up and we have some questions and they're gonna, we'll have some more slides to, to make it interesting with some backdrop, but it'll be questions that each one of them can go through. So now would be a good time for the panel to come up.
And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, as they, as they get seated, I'm gonna ask each panelist to, you know, within, within 30 to 45 minutes, introduce themselves and, and talk about their background. No, seriously, each person will take, you know, a couple minutes, introduce themselves and, uh, you know, what they do for their company. And I can tell you, I've had the opportunity to work with all of them uh, very closely over the years on a wide variety of different types of uh, projects. And so these guys are really uh, experts. You guys from over here probably can't see from the, but this podium's in the way. But So Tom, why don't you uh, start off, Tom Fishman. Sure, thanks, Jack. My name's Tom Fishman, and um, I'm at Hillwood. I lead a team that's responsible for the acquisitions and dispositions of industrial slash logis logistical real estate in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, Gray Bouchelon with Nuveen Real Estate, and uh, based here in Dallas, I oversee our industrial and logistics platform across the U.S. We've got about 52 million square feet under management and uh, six different mandates that pursue industrial across the country. Uh, Jeff Thornton, I serve as Regional Senior Vice President for Duke Realty. I'm based here in Dallas, responsible for operations in Dallas, Houston, and St. Louis, uh, which is comprised of about 30 million square feet of bulk industrial and really responsible for day-to-day -day operations and development uh, in those markets. My name is Michelle Wheeler. I'm president of Jackson Shaw Company. We're a private real estate development company with 45 years of uh, commercial real estate experience. We've got three lines of business. We've got an industrial line of business, a hospitality line of business, and a residential line of business. Um, we are private developers. We co-invest alongside of private equity or public funds in order to uh, procure development projects across the U.S. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Alan Gump. I'm with Colliers. I've been a industrial broker in Dallas for 35 years, and I don't know about you, but <clears throat> I feel like I've been invited to a black tie affair, and I'm the pair of brown shoes. Um, you are. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, that's all there is. Now, Alan won the Stimmons Service Award a few years ago, which goes to the professional with the highest degree of uh, professional ethics, as well as a great track record. So you, 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 you got black shoes on, you're fine. Okay. Well, Tom, let's, let's look at back at these slides that we talked about a little bit earlier. Here's some metrics that are up there. And so in your whole career, which goes back even to uh, Cobalt and before that, but most recently with Hillwood, have you ever seen uh, metrics like this? And what, is it, what does that mean to you? No, I mean, these, these are the strongest metrics we've seen. And I think as long as construction uh, stays in pace with uh, demand, we'll be okay. And... You know, I think, as, as you mentioned earlier, as long as there's e-commerce and people want more products and they want it quicker, you're going to see the need for industrial, whether it's, you know, the bigger buildings, as we refer to as bulk buildings, or the light industrial, infill, small bay, last mile. It's just going to continue to grow. I mean, do you use, in your financial pro formas, 6.4% uh, annual rental rate growth? So, you know, we'll use, well, would you and Darla let us know? But, you know, we, you know, we really look at re each region and each uh, city differently. So I'd say on average, you're anywhere 2 to 4%, and just depends on what market you're in. You know, you're seeing some secondary markets where you are seeing, you know, bigger rent growth than some primary markets just because there's no space. So, uh, but overall, I think, you know, this chart does a good job representing the national uh, mm -hmm. rent growth that we've had. Thanks. Well, Michelle, the previous slide and then this slide uh, addresses overall metrics and rental rate growth. What is it? What do you think this has to do with the overall historically low vacancy vacancy rate, and how is that affecting net absorption in your business? 
Yeah, so we currently have three million square feet under construction across the U.S. and in every market, used to a long time ago, it was not uncommon to have rent bumps after five years. And every market that we're in right now, we're getting annual increases, as Tom alluded to, between three and four percent. Um, you know, we're in a industry where industrial and retail have never been in each other's space more. So with the decline of retail, industrial has been the direct beneficiary of all of that absorption. Um, <coughs> the banks have been uh, a governor in terms of supply, but in large part, we want it now. It used to be okay that you'd have product delivered to your house in two days. Now you think about Amazon Prime and you have product delivered to your house in an hour. So as we continue to consume and want things immediate, our absorption is gonna continue to uh, increase. And do you look at some of these markets as opportunities for development for Jackson Shaw? We do. Um, we currently, it's interesting, the tightest U.S. markets that you've got up on the screen right now are some of the ones that we're not in. Um, we're in a lot of the secondary markets where the yields and our investors actually have moved toward in order to get a better uh, return on their investments. Okay, I have a question for you, for you, Alan. So Alan represents tenants and uh, also you know, does the, uh, land deals and works with, uh, does some sales and also works on occasional landlord leasing, I'm sure. But, and you're very hands-on with tenants every single day. I mean, and what, are your tenants talking to you about some of these daily tweets from the White House or China tariffs? Or what are you hearing from your customer base? <coughs> You know, we really don't. It's, it hasn't reached down uh, to the level of the transactions uh, at this point. Um, we're, we're not hearing that. Um, you know, we're, the momentum in this market is so strong. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, um, I, I think really so far it's, it's, uh, it's been um, still strong. I think, you know, we're seeing perhaps uh, like everybody, I think there's a, a little bit of a, a slowdown uh, over the last few years in the market activity. Uh, I think to your point, Jack, earlier, you know, the deals have gotten so much bigger, uh, even on the tenant rep side, you know, the deals that we went from uh, what used to be a big deal is now pedestrian almost, but uh, the deals are getting bigger um, and there may not be quite as many, but the, the, you know, I think as many of y'all in this room know, there's no way you could have kept up the pace of what we were seeing in 16, 17, and even 18. Uh, but yet, we're still, uh, by every other metric across the country, everybody uh, would love to see the volume that we have in this market. Yeah, this, this graph shows that the world trade has declined a little bit. And part of that's influenced uh, by the UK. And so, you know, Brexit has really slowed down uh, uh, the economy in, in the UK. And then some of this is starting actually to show up in the United States. It's interesting that the, uh, there's a tremendous amount of new net absorption in some of the port cities as uh, before the tariffs came into place, some companies would imp import more and, and stock up their warehouses just to be ready for the long haul if this trade war turned out to be a long event. So that's a slide that picks up on that. And then, you know, our economy in the United States is totally consumer-oriented. And, you know, people get, uh, they don't, they, like if the stock market goes down, like I mentioned earlier, 500 points yesterday, they went down 800 points a few w weeks ago. You know, that shakes the consumer's confidence and maybe they won't go out and buy a new uh, refrigerator. So that's something else that uh, 
that we're seeing on the investment side, you're probably seeing some of that, Alan, with your little bit of trepidation with your, your customers. Well, and, the, and you know, the housing, um, I think, uh, what, a week or two ago, it was announced that housing was back up. Um, so there's a lot of mixed signals. Um, I think housing is obviously something that probably impacts us. The greatest means, you know, Whirlpool selling more refrigerators and, and that uh, uh, with the new, with, with more housing. Obviously, that's been somewhat driven, if not entirely driven, uh, or a lot of it, by the interest rates and uh, the fact that uh, rates are so low and people are out, out buying. Um, so it's, it's, it's still been, uh, you know, the news is still very positive, uh, albeit a little slower, but still very good. This is a question for you, Gray, and, uh, and you, you might just digress slightly because the name Nuveen, we all recognize Nuveen from uh, mutual funds and you know, financial instruments like that, but Nuveen actually took over uh, TIA, Crefts, uh, Global Real Estate Holdings, and so now that's, you have your new name, Nuveen. But why don't you talk also about uh, the, the holdings that you have in the U.S. and some of the top markets that you look at for investment and development? Sure, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I think when we look at the slide here, where these port markets are obviously highly desirable um, in the institutional community. The, the barriers to entry are high. Um, with our roughly 50 million square feet, about a third of that falls where number three is in, in Los Angeles and in the Inland Empire. Um, that's by far our strongest performing market from a fundamental perspective. Uh, Jack talked about a downtime statistic of negative one in northern New Jersey. We measure the same for our portfolio. We've had 40 uh, spaces go dark in the course of 2019, and our average downtime there is just over one and a half months. So um, when you get space back in Los Angeles, it's not the worst thing. In fact, um, retention isn't always the best indicator of our future performance in that market, which is kind of perverse when you think about how we've measured performance historically. But um, we love that market. Um, a market that's not on here that, that we focus a lot on is uh, Atlanta. Um, you know, we've seen some things evolve there uh, uh, with regard to their roadway system uh, that we think makes infill really attractive. And so that's a market that we continue to focus on as well. This is a slide you can talk about, but, but Jeff Thornton, you can pile in on this slide as well. I mean, it's exciting and great when there's a big ribbon cutting for a million square foot building, but this slide points out that uh, actually smaller buildings uh, have potentially greater rental rate growth and operating fundamentals. And, and Gray, do you look at uh, small industrial buildings in what they call light industrial? Some people call urban logistics, which is what they call it in the, United, in the UK which sounds really sophisticated, but talk about urban logistic, light industrial versus big bulk. Sure, I think this is really intriguing and, and it's a product, Jack, of what we view as a really compelling supply story on the light industrial side. I mean, if you look 10 years trailing, about 2.8% of the base of bulk logistics facilities on average are delivered each year. Well, that same statistic for light industrial is about 50 basis points of new supply over the last 10 years, and Prologis has statistics that indicate approximately 50 basis points of light industrial supply are torn down each year in favor of higher and better uses. So we think light industrial supply is close to neutral in the U.S., and I think the rent growth might support a little bit of that story. I don't know, Jeff, on the, on the big box side, you know, if you weigh in kind of what you see on that end of it, but we've, we've been a little bit more focused on the light industrial front. 
you know, traditionally, if we've gone back to the last couple of development cycles, we've all been chasing nice land sites along major interstates at low prices. So you go back to the last cycle, you know, we would love to go buy sites at, you know, $1.50 and $2. If you're really pushing them, we're going we're to spend $2.50 a foot for a land site. We didn't really need that land site to be in close to the major population centers. We wanted it to be around, and, and I'll talk about Dallas for a minute. We wanted it to be around Dallas-Fort Worth, but we really saw that distribution center as a regional DC serving not just Dallas, but really this area of the country. And that, and that scenario certainly exists, but, but the key dynamic change um, and shift is really related to e-commerce. And you know, a lot of these fulfillment centers want to be in close, they want to be in infill locations. So all of a sudden you have, to, the, to this slide, you have developers starting to look more and more in close in those urban cores, and all of a sudden the thought of, of, of buying land at $2 and $2.50 a foot is completely out the window. Um, people almost, I mean, it, it, it scares me a little bit to think about this, but I really believe it's the truth. I think developers are thinking about land price second when it comes to enclosed sites. They're really looking at location first and can the site even be put in production because these enclosed sites are so difficult to, to entitle and to get in place. There's a lot of risk and time involved getting some of these sites in place, but pricing has almost become secondary. I mean, there's some unbelievable examples of land prices in different parts of the country. And you guys, from a national perspective, would know this, but I think Los Angeles, there's some, I mean, unless I have this wrong, I think there's some $70 per square foot land prices. Those are close, infill, great locations, irreplaceable uh, sites, but $70 a square foot for, for industrial land in some markets. Alan? Jack, we had a, this is just an anecdotal uh, story, but we had a, a building that is actually a warehouse building in the city of University Park which I bet you didn't know existed, but it does. And uh, our net rents on that to a, to a uh, online retailer were, were uh, double digits uh, net rent. Um, it, it's it's amazing, it, and it does, at some point it gets to the point where it really doesn't matter as much what the rent is as far as the location to your uh, comment earlier about proximity to the park cities. And that's not the only case. There's other cases where there are buildings uh, especially over in the Love Field area, as a good example, where they're smaller. Uh, what would have thought to have been an outmoded building is now got carrying the highest per square, per square foot cost uh, that we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, and um, I might just ask uh, Jeff a quick question, because as one of the nation's largest uh, public REITs and owners of industrial real estate, how much, I mean, do you have a lot of exposure to Amazon and companies like that? And is it, is it a, something you pay attention to? We, we, Jack, we do, as a big, big box operator, no question we do. Uh, the largest, uh, the three largest tenants in our portfolio nationally are Amazon, UPS, and Wayfair. So there's a lot of exposure there to that particular segment of the business. Um, we, you know, there's a lot of positives there because it's growing rapidly, and I can talk a little bit more about that here in a little bit. But it is something we have to manage. Um, you know, even with with um, 
big name tenants like Amazon, um, we do manage exposure. Uh, you know, we are, we're, we're a REIT. We're trying to grow from one year to the next, trying to grow FFO. We're trying to grow square footage, grow the portfolio. Um, you know, and, and, and Amazon has been a key driver of that. But having said that, we do look at our exposure to certain tenants, including Amazon, at, at certain times. And as a result, although we have not traditionally been sellers of our properties, we have sold certain buildings uh, over the last several years, including Amazon buildings, in order to mitigate our exposure to some of those larger users. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit about capital. I'm going to ask Tom Fishman, because nobody can read that from the audience. But <laughs> And Tom speaks uh, seven languages, and so he, he travels around the world for uh, Hillwood and meets with all these foreign LPs. Is that right? I don't do as much travel. At least we entertain them when they come in town. Yeah. But, you know, we're lucky at Hillwood that we have, uh, we're fortunate and we're blessed to have, you know, the Perot family invest in, in all of our transactions. Uh, but we do bring in a lot of foreign capital in our fund business. And, um, you know, they're really looking for cash flow and stability. You know, they're coming from uh, continents where interest rates are zero, sometimes negative. So you come here and you look at a logistical facility and you can get five, 6% return. And when that, their cost is zero or they can't find better investments, they decide to invest in the US and Canada. Yeah, I think one of the hardest parts for us is finding the domestic capital to match up with the international capital interest, you know, for purposes of, of preserving the, the right tax efficiency, you had to have domestic and international capital in balance in many of these funds. And, you know, particularly these orange boxes uh, in Asia Pacific, uh, there's a ton of interest for the reasons Tom mentions, but, but we don't have as much domestic capital to offset that with right now. Right, I, think, I think you just got back from a long trip overseas, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you had meeting after meeting of uh, interested investors wanting to be in your, one of your funds or just interested in the asset class in general. There's a, there's a story behind each one of these colors on there. The Canadians have been the biggest, as I said earlier. Uh, even uh, South America has some uh, state pension plans from Chile and Colombia. They've been active in our uh, asset class. And as Tom mentioned, some of the European groups where they get 0% interest rates on their treasury equivalents that we have in the United States. Uh, we've seen investors from Switzerland and uh, Bavaria province pension plan, groups like that, Denmark, they're, they're coming, coming into our country. And then the Middle East has, has been active for years and years. They, they sort, they sort of uh, slowed down after the price of oil dropped, but they're coming back now as well. There's all of this uh, noise about China and the United States, so the Chinese have actually, for the moment, somewhat slowed down, especially for high-profile assets, which would be a CBD office building in Manhattan. They're still looking at the industrial sector as in a fund format. And then all of those, um, on the, the uh, Japanese are primarily uh, equity investors for development, whether it's apartments or industrial. And then we've seen a tremendous amount, and Tom made a big deal last year with a group from uh, Singapore. So Singapore has five million people, small uh, place, but they're, ex they're exporting billions uh, into our asset class. And let's see, this is, uh, I mean, Jeff, while we're talking about some of this over overseas investment and all these major investors, what do, you, what do you think that they're looking at from the asset class? Do you have much exposure to them? And then what do you think is the primary gr driver for our asset class in general? 
Yeah, um, but it's a good question. I think to talk about the primary driver for the industrial asset class, I would start by talking about retail sales. Um, currently, e-commerce makes up about 10.7% 10 of our retail sales here, here nationally. Um, and you look at the growth projections to 2025, they think that um, that could bump all the way up to 25%. 25% of retail sales could, could, could be e-commerce related. So uh, now let's, let's look at the impact on, on industrial real estate and, and, and demand for that. Um, a typical um, fulfillment center is, or, or, or I should say a retail user that wants to sell a particular item, let's say a widget through an e-commerce center as compared to a bricks and mortar store, is gonna require about three times the amount of logistics space to sell that same widget um, in terms of industrial real estate. So um, we really look at these projections, this e-commerce re e retail growth going from 10.7% to 25% between now and 2025. And then we look at the fact it takes three times as much logistics space to sell that same widget out of a warehouse. And the projection is nationally, between now and uh, the end of 2021, 354 million square feet of additional industrial space is going to be required to meet this e-commerce growth. Um, so when you talk about demand drivers, uh, you talk about value drivers, that's really what we're looking at right now. Mm -hmm. And I think you layer on top of that um, the fact that these fulfillment centers really want to be in in-close locations, and those locations are in short supply, you have the potential for pretty solid rental, rental rate growth. So um, we really think this business is going to continue to grow um, in value in the foreseeable future. I know we don't have a slide on this, but that there could be some changes in that metric over time. I know that when I, you know, go home at night and shop online, I usually order, you know, five blouses and five <laughs> pairs of shoes, and then I know I can return return them all the next day if the ones I don't want. But that and so it's free. But that's going to change uh, over time. Once they have the consumer completely addicted to online shopping, then they're going to start charging. Uh, people to return things. So right now, it's, it's, it's that metric you're talking about. You need all this space just for, for sourcing it and delivering it, but also the returns. So that could change over time. Yeah, Jack, and, and I agree. And I think as we all know, we've all heard this, but you know, the, re the reverse logistics piece um, of the supply chain for these for these e-commerce users is the real trick, right? That's the that that that's the most expensive part. Um, I went and met with um, some broker buddies of mine that have recently moved into a new office uh, a couple weeks ago. They ordered four beautiful chairs from from Wayfair, which which I was a big fan of because we just built them a 900,000 square foot DC here in Dallas. So I thought that was great. The thing that I did not think was so great was they ordered four white chairs and they ended up with four light pink chairs which didn't really go with the motif of their of their manly office <laughs> but um they called wayfair informed them there was a problem and wayfair said you know what just keep those 700 those four 700 chairs it's going to cost us too much to get them back and back in in inventory and we'll just send you four new ones so um i think to your point as we go forward there's probably going to be some sort of financial benefit that these you these these e-commerce um retailers start to provide back to the customer for not returning things. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there are stocks on the New York Stock Exchange, such as uh, TJ Maxx, which I think is a lot of second second items, or whatever you call it, 
that, that didn't sell the first time around on the shelves. And so it's, and then they probably are a beneficiary of, of returns from online as well. Let's go back to the uh, capital markets a little bit, Tom. So you live in this world every day. And I, th I think this, uh, so this slide is a little bit outdated because it just shows Q1 totals for 2019. We're, we're expecting 2019 total volume of investment sales is gonna be more like $120 billion of sales. So it's gonna be the all-time, all-time year. And Tom, I know when you look at, you, you, you aggregate buildings one at a time, but you also play in the portfolio sales world. Can you give us some uh, commentary about portfolios versus one at a time? Sure. Um, you know, portfolios every year, you and I speak and we try and figure out, well, who's going to be the next portfolio buyer or seller? You know, we sit there, we throw out three or four names, and the next thing you know, six or seven trade. You know, the uh, Colony sale was announced this week. And that's right on the cusp of Blackstone closing out GLP. So it looks like the portfolios continue to uh, grow strong. You know, for Hillwood, we're really not the best portfolio acquisition group. We could, we underwrite it every once in a while. We'll have an investor, you know, take a look at it. But we really are in the portfolio aggregation strategy. And what we would do is we'll, uh, we'll acquire buildings or we'll develop them or even do joint ventures and try and get to that 10, 20 million square foot range, and that's where these portfolios really start to take off. But I look back at our acquisition history, and you know, while I say we don't uh, acquire portfolios, you know, I, I look back and realize we had three deals in that 100 to $150 million range. So I think if you can find a subset of assets in a certain market that makes sense, you know, we will purchase a $150 million portfolio. But when you get to these, and these portfolios are getting larger and larger, that's really our aggregation strategy versus uh, an acquirer. And these, these uh, groups that buy these portfolios are real smart, and the, the acquisition officer you know, doesn't want to go into the investment committee and say, hey, I won this deal at a, a 4.5 cap rate, because in years past, that might have been career-limiting you know, acquisition to buy something at that low of a return. But usually these acquisition officers, the second sentence out of their mouth is, but my returns in years 2, 3, 4, 5, 10 are going to be X with this uh, rental rate growth. And some of these big deals that Tom just mentioned, Blackstone, we, we use them all the time as a proxy for, our, for the capital markets for industrial. And they're, they're buying $18 billion GLP. Uh, they're buying the $6 billion uh, colony. They're buying all these, these uh, deals. And they're really looking for opportunities to uh, mark those rents to market. They think there's so much rental rate growth that we've talked about in these slides. They probably looked at some of our slides to develop their uh, investment strategy but they're buying these deals with near-term rollover exposure. And as we all may recall, in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, anything that was inside six years was, was scary near-term rollover exposure. And now groups like Blackstone, they don't want to buy a six-year lease term. They want to buy something that rolls in the next couple of years. This is a little bit about cap rates too. You guys can all, all comment on that. If you'd like, I mean, Michelle, you've got certain markets that you look at, and then you also look at certain asset sizes, the, the smaller uh, light industrial developments. And so this just shows a tr tremendous uh, uh, compression in cap rates, depending on where the uh, asset class is or what the, where the market markets are. Yeah, it's been interesting this year. 
last couple of years, in fact, we do shallow bay multi-tenant industrial buildings, and our average sizes are somewhere between that. You know, we'll do three buildings, maybe three to 500,000 square feet, project sizes of 25 to 50 million. What's happening is um, there is such an abundance of capital that they're looking at value add opportunities. So as soon as you start uh, shell completion, maybe even 60 days before you're complete, you're having investors call because they're looking at it going, hey, we're okay to take the leasing risk now because we think the returns are there and we like the rental rate growth story. So it's, um, it, you know, before if there was 100 basis point premium between a primary and a secondary market, now you've got institutions dipping down and going into secondary markets because they like the yield story. Um, we've just seen that there's been a lot more demand on the multi-tenant side, as your slide previously illustrated, um, and there's just an insatiable demand for that product class. Yeah, you know, and Jack, I would just, just add to that from, from a local perspective. You talk about talking to yeah. investors. I mean, yeah. I can remember during the last cycle and the cycles before having to sit in front of, you know, CEOs of our company and investors and in, in certain buildings we had built um, previously and just saying, look, there's just no meaningful rental rate growth in Dallas. Yeah. I remember sitting there and just having to pound it into their head. Dallas is a $3 market. Dallas is a $3 market. Right. Dallas is a $3 market. Dallas ain't a three dollar market anymore, and and Michelle, I agree with you. I mean, not only are those the, those rents growing, but they're growing dramatically. Well, it's and driving investment here. Some of these markets too that you've got illustrated on this slide, you wouldn't even have people going to. You know, we went to Jacksonville, Florida, over a decade ago, and then all of a sudden, everybody started going. So, I mean, it's, you know. Well, we were following you. You were following, yeah, I know. <laughs> you were stalking, is what I call it. Um, so it's just been an interesting time in our in our business. Yes, yeah, so Jack, interest rates also. Now, again, I don't think they're yeah, a one-to-one relation, <laughs> yeah. but if you look at what interest yeah. rates have done over the last seven to eight years and where people are borrowing, luckily we're all staying um, um, with, with low leverage, so we all have some discipline. But if you look at what interest rates have done for the last five to seven years, uh, I think that's really moved yeah. cap rates. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree completely. This is, uh, so this shows class B, which you can't read it from the back of the room, but there's more green on there than there is uh, red. Yeah, but this is optimistic, Jack. I mean, I see sixes on there. I can't remember the last time I uh, saw a six <laughs> in the market. Yeah. So this must be a few quarters dated. Yeah, this is maybe outdated even as we speak. But I do remember, and you know, for one brief moment in 2007, uh, the cap rates in Oklahoma City were about the same as the cap rates in uh, Dallas. And so as, the, as these, uh, so many red cap rates on this Class A, LA, markets like that, Northern New Jersey, so investors start you know, being more open-minded about secondary markets. And if that secondary market has an economic driver, such as a UPS hub or FedEx, something like that, then, then those, make, those are good strategic investments. And this is a quick snapshot on some of these cap rates that, that uh, I mean, really, we're, we're, we're cap rates, um, Cap rates really depend on the rent roll, and like I said earlier about opportunities to mark to market. So you can you, you can buy a uh, if a rent you can buy a really low cap rate in Dallas if all the rents are way below the market and you can roll them to much higher rents and get a better NOI. So this sometimes uh, cap rates are not the best way to look at look at a investment yield. And then there's a few markets here we could talk about. This is not meant to be representative, but these are some markets around the country. 
I mean, Alan, I know that you've, you've got a national tenant base. Most of your work's probably in Dallas, but are you seeing some of your uh, clients look at different parts of the country for their supply chains? <clears throat> yeah, well, we're, we're still probably Southwest-centric, or at least I, I would say I am. Um, we, we are seeing deals, um, uh, national tenants uh, uh, in secondary markets just because of growth. Uh, we've done several deals recently in Salt Lake City. Reno, uh, and um, uh, what's interesting is the they're, they're uh, you know all of those markets um, are really catching up with regard to supplying uh, because a lot of the well, I'll give you a best example I can think of is San Antonio, uh, and I know that's not very far afield, but it's a market that. Uh, the first time I did a deal in San Antonio was back in the 80s, and there wasn't even a local developer you could find to build anything uh, in San Antonio. I had to actually get one from Austin uh, to go there, but that's a market that's really come on strong, and um, uh, and I think you know it's just these national uh, companies are they're they're uh, expanding. Uh, that's just been part of the last probably 10 years is is uh, is the uh, getting into the smaller markets that they may have not been in before because of the growth oftentimes of the local operations. Uh, you know, a good, you were talking about Amazon earlier. Uh, one of the deals that we did last year was just to build a suit for a company called Domatic. Um, they did a 700,000 foot deal in Fort Worth. Well, that's pretty much all tied to Amazon. There's a tremendous number of deals that get done both here and smaller markets that are really as a result of, um, you know, larger businesses. You see these huge deals get done, and but what you don't always see is the 27 deals that come after it that are supplying that particular company. Um, another deal that we did, which is which didn't get a lot of press, which was, uh, uh, and I had to write this down because I'll never remember it, but uh, we assisted Finisar in purchasing a 700,000 foot building up in Sherman and it's for the lasers that go in the Apple phones. And, uh, you know, that's a, uh, uh, that was, is gonna employ 500 people. So there's a lot of smaller market deals uh, that, that, uh, uh, that we, you know, that we've been involved with that, that uh, really have a big impact, but don't necessarily get the airtime that Amazon gets, because uh, everybody does f seem to focus on Amazon and, and uh, Walmart and so forth. But, there's a, there's a huge momentum of deals that come along behind those that are servicing those giant companies. I think that's right. Uh, Michelle asked us to keep Jacksonville off here. She didn't want anybody to know about it as a, as a great market. But these are some other markets. And, you know, Detroit, Michigan, I think has is really low vacancy rate in Detroit, Michigan, and yet, and yet it's you know, great proximity to a giant percentage of the U.S. population in one day drive. And so, like you're saying, Alan, supply chain decisions are really driving these locations, and no longer are they just, the, is it purely focused on what the institutional investor would think about these places? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll make one other comment here, because uh, just thinking of St. Louis and, and compared to Dallas, you know, the other thing you see on some of these 
smaller markets, you just don't get the level of competition in those markets that you have in the tier ones. Um, so, you know, from our standpoint, from a, from a value creation standpoint, we don't have 35 different developers we're competing with, let's say, in, in St. Louis, and it, and it matters. Yeah. It, it, it really does matter and um, does drive a, a stronger return in those particular markets. That's true. It's okay. interesting. We've talked about cap rate growth. We've talked about um, capital readily available, but there are some challenges in our business right now, too. I mean, as Jeff alluded to earlier, trying to find land sites right now is, is difficult, especially in infill locations, and construction pricing and labor shortages are some challenges that all the developers are struggling with right now to try to make our numbers work. Oh, I know. Yeah, Jack, we look at uh, population growth. You know, as we talk about e-commerce, so I think population growth yeah. is so important when, when you're looking to make an investment decision in any, any market, especially some of these smaller markets, or called, you know, secondary markets. Yeah, that's right. You know, Tom, I'll, I'll add to that. Um, you know, back when things were horrible, in 2009, we couldn't even make a real estate deal if we tried, couldn't make a lease deal if we tried. Um, I was on a committee at Duke and we met for about 18 months and we evaluated markets across the U.S. And we picked what we thought were the primary 46, don't ask me why, the 46 uh, industrial markets in Dallas-Fort Worth. And we spent a year and a half evaluating where we wanted to deploy capital when we came out of the downturn. We knew it was horrible then, we knew it wouldn't be horrible forever. And we evaluated uh, a lot of different criteria, location, population, different pieces of the uh, supply chain equation, cap rates, so on and so forth. And we came up very, with a very complicated and complex um, uh, spreadsheet. We really took all these different uh, criteria and used the criteria in a weighted fashion, you know, to evaluate each market. And after 18 months of analysis, right, in a very complicated <laughs> spreadsheet, it all came back to population growth and location, right? I mean, I mean, really, we can be really, we can make things really difficult if we want, but it was very straightforward, and, and really, the analysis led us to the tier one markets. And all the e-commerce users have figured out that same sure. equation, by the way, right? So it's 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 not a coincidence that they've wound up in a lot of these areas with the high population growth. But you mentioned Michelle some of the challenges, and I we kind of refer to that as the invisible hand of supply constraint, right? And everyone is quick to point to limited availability of desirable land sites, but it's harder to quantify unless you're a McKinsey consultant um, exactly where you find these other constraints like entitlement, right. zoning, labor availability, cost inflation, certain material availability, and you know we're even finally seeing some trickle effect of the tariffs in our GC bids, and we haven't seen that until the last 30 days. Mm. And so, you know, I don't know if that's a canary in the coal mine or not, but it's something that we, we keep our eye on as well that, that may impact how we view supply going forward. You know, and I would say one thing, shame on all of us for the word labor just coming up this late in, in the presentation. Um, I, I mean, I'm sorry. Duke, I put these questions together as best I could. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just kidding. Well, no, no I'm, I'm, just, I'm just surprised it hasn't organically come I know. Um, because, I mean, I, I, I can't even, I can't buy a land site at Duke anymore without presenting a labor study to my investment committee as part of my write-up. And Alan, you know, I don't know what you're hearing from tenants, but you know, a lot of the brokers I talk to say that, you know, if labor isn't the number one driver, it's certainly a top two or three these days. 
It's on every I, RFP that we're getting now from tenant rep brokers. Yeah, you're a labor study. You don't do a large deal without a labor study being right. involved anymore. And and uh, uh, we're seeing it on every single transaction. And it and it really. Oh, by the way, as far as 09, you've forgotten we did do a lot of deals. They were called blend and extend. <laughs> uh, we did. This is yeah. a young crowd. They have no idea what I just said. <laughs> um, I, try, I try to block those out, Alan. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, we did a lot of <laughs> B&Es. Um, but labor, it's all about labor. And, and uh, candidly, um, uh, that's when you start talking about a location, that's the first thing you do uh, talk about is, is the labor. And, and uh, candidly, it, it, is, it, you know, it, it really has, I think, turned the tide in the Metroplex as far as where deals uh, are going to go next. And, and uh, I just, I, you know. Probably said enough, but that's I can't uh, stress enough how that is the you know the HR department uh, probably drives more transactions than the real estate department does. Yeah, I mean uh, Jeff's right for bringing that up. Around the world, in Japan and China, labor's even more challenging than it is here in the United States. I mean Japan has such a low birth rate. I think it's 0.9. Uh, birth rate, not not it's supposed to be 2.1. So they they're the leaders of the world for innovation and robot robots, and so that that could happen. We could see that one day in the United States. And most robots don't need a parking space out out in the uh, parking lot. So that some of these buildings that are being built by Amazon, which even though they're full of sophisticated material handling equipment and their own version of robotics, they still need 2,000 parking spaces. So 20 years from now, some of that could change as well. We could be all robots up here doing this panel session too. <laughs> it'll it'll be interesting to see whether or not we ever change how we charge for rent. You know, it's clear height now going to sixty. Will we start charging by volume instead of by square feet? I mean, how are we going to change our business? Um, you know, it's an interesting time frame. But it's it's funny because I was speaking to a group of yeah. uh, college students several months ago, and that was the first question in Q and A: is why don't you charge on volume? Yeah. Right. And so we take for granted that we charge on square footage and there's this intuition that's like blatant, right? For yeah. someone that doesn't know anything about our industry, why don't you charge on volume? And there's going to, to come a point where that, that could change. When you talk about 70 foot, you know, clear heights, how, you know, we're changing our rent per square foot, but how much more efficient are they going mm -hmm. by going taller? So. Is that a good metric? I mean, Tom, well, is, Tom is building yeah. some of those buildings. Yeah, so it's a question of square feet versus yeah. cubic square feet. Right. You know, so if you do have a mezzanine, you know, we used to, to see the mezzanine space just kind of be there, but now it's being fully utilized. Right. So, I mean, you can look at this, the site plan and say it's a million square feet, but it's really being used, let's just say it's two stories, you've got two million square feet of distribution space. So you have to look at those rents and say, okay, that kind of makes sense why the rent is what it is. Right. So the cold storage folks have been doing this for a while, right? So there is a, a corner of our industry that does charge on cubes. So I just, maybe it makes it into our space too, who knows? You know, the only thing I would add to that is that I think a lot of people do make the assumption that, you know, taller is better. We did a uh, lease last year, it was a million square feet. They chose to go to the lower building and bypass the 40 foot clear building because part of their operation, the storage component needed the sprinkler system that was already there. And when you start building 40 and higher, your sprinkler system uh, can't keep up with some of the goods that are being stored because the water dissipates uh, at, at such an amount that the lower ceiling is actually was better for them than the 40 foot clear. 
And I would just say that you'd be probably surprised at how many tenants really aren't ready for 40-foot clear. Yeah. In fact, I'd say it's the majority of them. They're, they're really not. We've even, that deal I mentioned, that was a floor stack building of a million square feet, no racking. So they're not really, you know, it's, it's not a given that taller is better. I think that's more a function of what the investor community wants to buy than it is what the users are demanding. And an element of future proofing, right? I mean, like you have the real estate director who just doesn't want to look foolish at the end of his 10-year lease, yeah. right? And so he reaches for the 36 or 40-foot clear. How many 36-foot clear buildings have you built where they rack to 30? You know, most of them, right? Yeah, if not lower. And I mean, I think, and I think the reality is, Alan, even even to your point, if you're building 40-foot clear today, to Tom's point, we're really building for that user that wants to come in and put that put that mezzanine in there. That's really what you're trying to capture today. Um, you know, I. I would love, and I've not seen a study, but I would love to see a study of 40-foot clear buildings that are not mezzanined and are fully racked to the maximum clear height. Mm -hmm. I, I, I bet they're few and far between. Yeah, but, but the reasons that we've just mentioned here are the reasons that people are, buying, are, are building them, future-proofing a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's see, I think we're getting towards the end of our time here. We might actually get finished a little bit earlier. Let's just do like a real quick speed round and each person could, I think this is kind of uh, funny or interesting. So maybe each person says your, your, your biggest deal of this year and your smallest deal and, and give us a little color. Sure, bought a vacant 1 million square foot building um, that was vacant that we will take the risk on. And then we bought a 100,000 square foot building with a tenant for eight years that we got lucky and we were able to uh, procure it at a high cap rate. So from 100,000, 100% lease to a million square foot vacant. Okay, that's good. So for us, our smallest deal uh, uh, thus far is about $9 million, if you can believe it. Um, you know, we're a trillion-dollar institution, and we're, we're dipping down to do $9 million industrial deals, but that's indicative of the challenges we face. Um, on the, the bigger side, um, we've got some things that are kind of brewing, and, and maybe over time I can share more about that, but, but we've got a, a, maybe a big deal that's in the hopper right now. That's, that's more than $9 million. It's more than $9 million. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, so I would say that the biggest deal we've done this year is leasing a spec building out in Grand Prairie just because when we lease that spec building, it allows us to move forward and build another spec building. So a um, little bit of success, but gets another one. So um, smallest deal that I've done, and I, and I think, you know, this is a little bit of a function of, of working for a big REIT, having tenant, good tenant relationships. You know, we are really pushing rent growth um, uh, and term these days, but, um, you know, tenant relationships are important. You know, we did do, golly, I even struggle to say it, but we did do an extension with the tenant that was about a year, um, which is which is a relatively small deal for us, not part of the, um, not per, part of what we're trying to do in a day-in, day-out basis, but it's, it's part of the tenant re retention piece over a long period of time. That's good. Uh, smallest development deal that we've done has been 96,000 square feet. Um, generally, we do multi-tenant deals, so I, if I talk about lease transactions, I mean, we'll, we've got a lot of examples of 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, largest deal that we've done, we recently closed 130 acres in Fort Worth, um, working on another 30 that uh, took us a long time to entitle. We're pretty excited about that industrial park. That's great. Alan? Um, 
I don't think anybody really cares about the smallest deal I did. I, I think I leased no. a mini warehouse for a boat or something. But um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, the, this last year has been uh, one for the books as far as the last couple of years really has been one for the books for large deals. Uh, and we were lucky enough to be involved in several of those, uh, both existing and build a suit. Um, the, the, the comment that I would make just in closing for, for me, and we hadn't really touched on it, but I just wanted to comment on, and that is that I think <clears throat> um, we're seeing a lot more manufacturing going on than what perhaps is necessarily understood. Um, you know, so much of the manufacturing today goes into warehouses and people don't necessarily know that there's manufacturing. But I do think we've seen, a, uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen a real resurgence of manufacturing. Uh, John Gorman and I just did one uh, over in Turnpike uh, for, uh, and, and a lot of this is driven by uh, rail, which is interesting. In fact, we've got a rail deal we're working on now. I've, I bet I've worked on more rail deals in the last three or four years than I did the first 30 years in the business. And there was an assumption um, that rail was going to, we were getting away from direct delivery, everything was going to go to intermodal yards, and, uh, and so the developers, quite frankly, and a lot of it due to cost, quit building rail serve buildings. Uh, and uh, I got to tell you, the, uh, we were talking earlier about some of the smaller buildings and the higher rents for some of these urban logistics buildings, but you get into some of these rail buildings, 24 clear, it doesn't matter. Um, these buildings are, uh, I, I would say that those are probably some of the most uh, uh, popular, hotly sought after buildings today uh, because they don't have to have necessarily the ESFR sprinkler system. Uh, but if they have rail, uh, it's, it, it's go there's a lot of uh, demand out there by some of these manufacturers that frankly you never hear about. So that's been a, that's been a, a bit of a, a, a new thing for us in the last few years. Great. Well, that concludes our uh, panel session, so let's have a round of applause for our great panelists. Well, I don't know about you, but um, industrial got a lot more interesting once we started ordering online, so Jack, you're the sexiest man in real estate these days. <laughs> as well as all of you. Um, I personally was ordering my uh, Ghostbuster sweatshirt online um, and will return it in case it doesn't fit. So hopefully they don't start charging for returns. I'll be in big trouble. Um, thank you. This has been a great morning and a great conversation. My name is Linda McMahon and I'm president of the Real Estate Council. I will tell you a lot of the issues you're talking about like workforce development and development tra uh, tra um, challenges are the things that we were working on in public policy at the Real Estate Council. So uh, we're trying to work on those issues so that we can make this business a lot more successful. I'd I also want to thank uh, DCEO and Grant Thornton for being our uh, partners today. DCEO is our exclusive media partner and Grant Thornton is, is our sponsor. So we thank you for being here, thank you. Uh, we pride ourselves on bringing you cutting edge content from the greatest thinkers and leaders in our industry, I think this panel shows that evidence. And we hope to see all of you at the next uh, speaker series, which will be uh, Capital Markets Update with Robert Kaplan, the President of the Federal Reserve on November 5th, right here. Uh, we, are, uh, we are excited about having our final program that time, and we'll have some special announcements to make. 
I know you all are dying to get these slides, and so we are going to be circulating the slides on our social media channels. So if you don't follow us on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Facebook, on um, Twitter, those, that's where you're gonna find all of these slides. That will be at, at Trek Dallas for Twitter, the Real Estate Council on LinkedIn, and at Trek Dallas on Instagram, and I'm sure it's probably the same on Facebook. So we're really excited about uh, being able to provide you this information because it was tremendous content, and uh, thank you, thank you again to our, our speakers. Thanks, have a great day. That's it for us today. I'd like to thank Grant Thornton for sponsoring today's episode and our speakers, Jack Fraker, Gray Bouchelon, Tom Fishman, Alan Gump, Jeff Thornton, and Michelle Wheeler for joining us at last week's Market Matters, the final Market Matters event of the year. Subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts and follow Trek on social media. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.